Good evening to you. Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good evening, good evening to you. You. Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. And welcome to March. As most of us know, March is uh, Women's History Month. And March 8th, I believe, is Women's Day. And there's also um, an International Day of the Woman. I think that also falls on March 8th. So be on the lookout for some different things we'll be doing on that day just to honor women. Also on our Friday programs at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're inviting you, women, women writers, women poets, to join us, bring your book, read aloud, and tell us a little bit about your book and where we can find it. If you'd like a specific placement on a particular Friday, you can email me at thedaringdialogues at gmail.com for more information about how you can get a specific placement on any of the Fridays in March. So tonight, we're going to be talking about three Black women, and we're going to be reading from a Black woman did that. 43 boundary-breaking, bar-raising, world-changing women. Now, something that I have come across that I think is uh, pretty pretty cool and um, just going to share a little decorating hack with you uh, as I talk about these. These come from the Smithsonian, but I was able to pick them up at Barnes and Nobles. And what it is, is a set of 100 postcards entitled Brave Black First. Now there's also a companion book that goes along with these, but at the time um, I only saw the postcards and I'm a person that likes to send postcards, send little notes, um, send thank yous to people. And so this actually is uh 50 different cards of different women who are celebrating uh, 50 African-American women who changed the world. And one thing I've done with some of the some of the images, and of course, I could change them out if I want to, but I just selected some specific women who uh, represent different things in my life. And I took that postcard. So for those of you who are like, I want some decoration in my home or... I want something that represents people that inspire me, um, but I don't necessarily, I may not have the funding, you know, to go and buy a painting about them, but I want to have some kind of decoration in my home. So here is what I did with some of the postcards. If you notice, this is uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, and then this one is of Angela Davis. And then this one is of Maya Angelou. 
So good evening to those of you who are coming in. So what I did was I took the postcards and I just bought some frames, you know, they don't necessarily have to be all the same kind, but for me, this worked for my interior space. And I put the postcards in frames. And now I've taken these frames and I've put them inside of my music room area as some inspiration for me as I'm doing my creative arts and tinkering around on my keyboard. So that's just a little decorating hack. So if you feel like, you know, I really, you know, want some images of people that inspire me, but I don't necessarily have the budget to buy a whole bunch of posters and paintings, get some postcards, buy a frame, put the postcard in the frame and voila, you have your own set of framed images and it just spruces up your place. So let's get into tonight's reading. We have three black women that we're taking a look at tonight. And the first black woman is a woman by the name of Barbara Harris. And I'll show you the image that we have of Barbara Harris tonight. And let's take a listen to how she is impactful. Serving as pastor, priest, or rabbi has long been an honored tradition in the history of world religions, if you are a man. Women have only recently been welcomed into positions of power in faith-based organizations, and even now, their presence is rare. Now, we could say in the modern world this is true, but in the ancient world, women were actually leaders and in power. Um... So some of that history has gotten a little lost, but in the ancient world, it wasn't um, unusual for a woman to be queen or to be a warrior or to even be in a spiritual position, but that history is being yet recovered. So I just want to say that. Barbara Harris is one of the few women who chose to pursue a life and career in the church, even though nearly all of the leaders of her faith at the time were men. She was always drawn to the church. In addition to her deep faith in God, she had a gift for communicating that was obvious even at a young age. As early as high school, Barbara wrote a column called High School Notes by Bobby that ran in the Philadelphia edition of the Pittsburgh Courier, an established Black-owned newspaper with a nationwide following. As a teenager, Barbara formed a youth group at St. Barnabas Church in Philadelphia that later became one of the largest youth groups in the city. She went to Philadelphia High School for Girls, one of the best in the city, but found it more difficult than she'd anticipated. And worse than that, her teachers were unsupportive. The school's vice principal went so far as to say that Barbara and her other African-American friends weren't smart enough to be there. Barbara wanted to leave the school after a while, but her mother made her stick it out. Later in life, Barbara said she was happy she did. The experience taught her, contrary to what her teachers had said, that she was smart and strong and she could make it through adversity. I learned that you could make it through tough situations, she has said, that you don't let situations or people deter you from pressing forward. After high school, she got a job with a Black-owned public relations firm called Joseph V. Baker Associates and took classes at Charles Morris Prince Price School of Advertising and Journalism at night. 
Her work in the PR firm was consistently good. Over the years, she climbed the ladder at the company until she became its president in 1958. But Barbara wanted more than just success at work. She found a church community that suited her desire to grow spiritually and make the world a better place, the Church of the Advocate. It was both a church and a center of civil rights activity, a place where she could practice her faith and do social justice work with fellow churchgoers. In 1965, Barbara led a church group to Montgomery, Alabama to participate in the last leg of the now famous march from Selma to Montgomery, which we talked about on yesterday, led by Martin Luther King Jr. About that exceptional historical moment, Barbara said she felt like she was supporting some people who had taken their life into their own hands and said, it's going to be different. And walking with that great throng of people just felt good. Her church hosted events that weren't welcome elsewhere in the city, including political education classes with the Black Panther Party and the 1968 National Conference with Black Power with the Black People's Unity Movement, which was attended by 2,000 people. Barbara was among the first generation of African-Americans working in the predominantly white corporate world. As a community relations consultant for the Sun Oil Company, later named Sunoco, she showed her colleagues how they could give back to the communities who bought their products. At the same time, she continued her religious education. Many seminaries that trained clergy did not accept women. Now, if you've been on some of our other broadcasts, um, our Theology Thursdays, we talked about the origin of the word seminary and how it comes from the word semen, which basically means a place of learning for the male. Um, it was supposed to be symbolic and representative of men passing on spiritual knowledge to other men. Barbara did not want to give up her job just yet. So instead of attending a seminary full time, she took religion courses at various schools, including Villanova University and the Pennsylvania Foundation for Pastoral Counseling. Joining the ministry was what she felt she was put on earth to do, her true vocation and the church was slowly changing the rules. Finally, in 1976, the Episcopal Church recognized that women could be priests in 1976. But many church leaders and followers resisted. They were just not ready to accept women in positions of power, possibly because they had not quite read the rest of their Bible to see how many women had already been in power. Some churches only allowed female priests to work as assistants or assign them to smaller churches. Barbara's mother disapproved and her friends were skeptical at first, but Barbara persisted and in 1979, she was ordained a deacon in the Episcopal Church. The following year, she moved up in church hierarchy. She became a priest and began serving the community at St. Augustine of Hippo Church in Norristown, Pennsylvania. She remained there until 1984. She combined her background in journalism with her church work and became the executive director of the Episcopal Church Publishing Company, publisher of The Witness, a magazine that champions social justice causes. Barbara brought her voice to the magazine. She said, in my column, I wrote mostly about the struggle for civil liberties for blacks and other minorities. She also became chaplain to the Philadelphia County Prison. Barbara was elected to be the bishop suffragan, a member of the clergy who helps the bishop above her, of the Diocese of Massachusetts in 1988. But she was met with the objections of many who looked at her background and thought that her advocating for peace, women's rights, prisoners' rights, 
and the rights of other marginalized groups and the environment had made her too radical. They also pointed to her lack of formal seminary training. Barbara did not waver. In 1989, she was ordained, becoming the first woman to serve as a bishop in the Anglican Church. The accomplishment made history, but she also faced a lot of opposition because, as she says, I was a woman, I was black, I was divorced, I was outspoken. When asked how she got through the backlash, she explained, there were enough people supportive and confident in my ability to exercise this office and enough people praying for me, including her mother, who had changed her opinion about women being clergy and cheered her daughter on. During the next 13 years of service, Barbara changed the minds of many reluctant people who now admire her work and sing her praises. That is Barbara Harris. Our next young lady for tonight, of whom I also have this uh, postcard over here that we showed you earlier. Oh, no, I didn't show you earlier. I have that one as well. But we're going to look tonight at Ava DuVernay. Ava DuVernay was a California girl who spent her summers in Alabama. She lived with her mom and stepdad in Linwood, just outside of Compton, a Los Angeles neighborhood known for its hip-hop and gang culture. She was surrounded there by a loving family that included an aunt, who in Ava's words was a ferocious movie watcher and fan with an encyclopedia knowledge of film. This aunt inspired Ava in her appreciation of art and film. Ava describes herself as nerdy. Rather than hanging out with the cool girls, she liked to spend her lunchtime working in the school office. She credits her strong work ethic to her stepfather. She grew up watching him joyfully going to work at his own business, installing flooring. He said to her, if you can find the work that you love, you'll never work. His wise words stuck with her. She found her first job as a teenager working in a frozen yogurt shop. When she served customers making perfect spirals of yogurt, it was a point of pride. Film was not on her radar in college. She earned a double major in English literature and African-American studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. She initially hoped to pursue a career in journalism. She landed an internship at CBS, but didn't enjoy it as much as she imagined and her enthusiasm for the field faded. I worked at Fox in a couple of big PR firms for about four years. Was good at it, she said. She had ideas though about how public relations and publicity could be done better, especially where projects involving young people and black people were concerned. So in 1999, she started her own agency. Clients hired the DuVernay Agency to promote TV shows and films, including hits like Spy Kids, Shrek 2, and Dreamgirls. One day while working, she found herself on a movie shoot near where she grew up. A, lot, a light bulb went on in her head and she thought, I could be making this film. She had her own ideas, her own vision, her own stories to tell. So, Ava didn't pick up the camera until she was 32 years old and began to make films independently while running the agency. I Will Follow was released in theaters in 2011 and film critic Roger Ebert called it one of the best films I've seen about the loss of a loved one. Ava brought her stellar skills as a publicity and marketing person to her creative work as a filmmaker, 
particularly with her next feature film, the critically acclaimed Middle of Nowhere. She was emerging as a filmmaker and wanted to bring her peers along with her. So she founded Array, previously the African-American Film Festival releasing movement, a collaborative of what she calls like-minded black arts organizations around the country that come together to distribute black films to movie theaters. The film that put her on the map was Selma, released in 2014. In it, David Oyelowo, who also starred in The Middle of Nowhere, portrayed Martin Luther King during a civil rights campaign to help register voters in Alabama. It received the Golden Globe and Academy Award nominations for Best Picture. It was the first time a film directed by an African-American woman was up for these awards. Ava herself won a Best Woman Director Award given by the Alliance of Women Film Journalists and was named Best Director by the African-American Film Critics Association. In early 2016, Ava was busy working on Queen Sugar, a TV show that she created and produced based on a novel by Natalie Bazile about three African-American siblings who inherit their father's sugar farm in Louisiana when she got an email from a Disney executive. In it, she was offered the job to direct A Wrinkle in Time, based on a beloved fantasy novel by the same name. It is an exciting tale about a girl who travels across the universe with her little brother and her friend and saves the world. When she took on the project, she became the first black woman to direct a film with a budget of more than $100 million. The projects Ava chooses often bring attention and add insight to issues of social justice. Her 2016 documentary, 13th, refers to drawing a line connecting slavery, Jim Crow laws, and mass incarceration of black men in America. She co-wrote and directed the four-part series, When They See Us, which tells the story of five black boys who spent years in prison for a terrible crime they did not commit. The case unfolded during the spring of 1989, and the young men widely became known as the Central Park Five. But Ava didn't use that moniker in the miniseries, believing that it dehumanized the falsely accused young men. The powerful miniseries released in 2019 renewed public outrage about the injustice and revived people's commitment to fixing long broken parts of the U.S. justice system. Ava is not new to combining her artistic work with an effort to change the world, but she said she once resisted being seen as a social justice girl in Hollywood. But as I've become older and I think more maturely about it, I'm okay with being social justice girl. Great art has tremendous power to change the hearts and minds of people. As Ava has said, I want more girls to be able to see themselves behind the camera creating images we all enjoy, and I want to call attention to the fact that women directors are here all over the world. Our last woman for this evening, before I turn it over for some conversation, is Zenobia Bailey. And this is the illustration of her. Before she was famous for being nationally recognized as a fiber artist and cultural activist, Zenobia Bailey, she was Sherilyn, a child growing up in the predominantly white city of Seattle, Washington. She described her coming of age as very challenging for a creative black girl. 
She looked different from most of the people around her, and she was treated differently too. It left her feeling disregarded and lonely. School was particularly tough. No matter how much work I did, even extra credit work, I was always getting D's. I was held back in the third grade. In contrast, she was happy at home. Her mom brightened their house with tablecloths, curtains, and other housewares. She used old textiles and other materials she found that cost little or no money long before the idea of upcycling was trendy. Zenobia described her mother's style as funky, chic, urban household aesthetics that brings that beauty to a home. The friendly African-American community where she lived gave her a sense of security, and the outdoor landscape of her hometown inspired her. She often says that she was first introduced to literature and art by nature. Poetry was in the air. I first knew I was an artist when I was about nine years old. One day I drew this bike. We had a parent teacher's day and my mother came to the school. My teacher took her to the side and showed her this bike that I drew and my mother got me a bike after that. So I thought there was some magic to this thing. Zenobia didn't blossom as a student until college. At the University of Washington, she discovered ethnomusicology, the study of music and its relationship to culture. And she said, the whole world opened up to me. She then went across the country to pursue her education in New York City with a little help from home. The Seattle chapter of the Lynx, an African-American women's social club and service organization, provided financial support to help her get to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. But Zenobia had issues with the way art and design were taught there. She believed her teachers did not fully embrace or respect Black culture and its impact on design. Nonetheless, she earned a fine arts degree from Pratt in 1977. Zenobia was fascinated by how everyday objects are made both to be useful and to look beautiful. At school, while she was studying industrial design, she found that it was hard designing for the mainstream, which was what her professors wanted her to do. She felt that her originality was being stifled. Everybody has their own signature aesthetic, and mine is funk she explains. The concept comes from the African-American household, the way colors were used, the way that patterns were used together, the way that textures were used together. Zenobia has said that her aesthetic is rooted in the way her mother, and probably her grandmother too, and the women in her community embraced and used colors and patterns. She had great ideas, but she did not have the money to buy the expensive tools necessary to professionally carry out her plans. So she took another route. She learned to crochet from a fellow artist and found that she could apply her creativity to making beautiful and useful things that way. Plus the tools she needed, a crochet needle and yarn were affordable. Needlecraft allowed her to grow as an artist and designer and produce objects that people could use like hats, she put a unique spin on the designs and her hats were a big hit. Now called Zenobia Bailey, she made a name for herself in more than one way. She went from making hats to clothing, all while developing her own style of mixing colors, creating patterns and incorporating other objects such as beads and shells. Her work was featured in women's lifestyle and fashion magazines by fashion forward editors. 
Then she moved beyond designing clothing and accessories to become a name in fine art circles, especially in Harlem, where she lived for many years. She works in a range of media from crocheted mandalas, wearable art, tents, and soft sculpture to photography and furniture design. At the root of her art is the use of color that's like a language of her own. Much of her art has been acquired by individual collectors, galleries, and museums. But Zenobia has also been commissioned to create public art to be enjoyed by everyday people in everyday life. In New York City, she was chosen to design a mural in the Hudson Yard subway station. She titled the three-part 2,788-square-foot mosaic mural, Functional Vibrations. To make it, she crocheted pieces, which were then photographed. Then she worked with local craftspeople who used enlarged digital images of her work to create the tiles for the installation. The craftspeople matched her yarn colors and recreated the texture of woven materials in the glass tiles, which now cover parts of the ceiling and a large dome in the station. Zenobia incorporated music into the piece as well. The dome piece is just circles and mandalas and squares, and they are embroidered together. Some of them have 45s on them, she said. Two pieces are from the Atlantic record label. And the reason why I use the Atlantic label is because of the Atlantic slave trade that brought us here, she said. The artwork is also the cosmos, the coming of life and ending of life and everything in between. As subway riders pass through the station, they can look up and around and be taken for a moment into her colorful cosmos. Functional Vibrations is not only a large-scale public work, she continues to exhibit in museums around the U.S. and in public spaces. She is currently working on the ceiling of the Grand Reading Room at the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in Washington, D.C. Two statements by Zenobia. I make art to stay sane. It's a way of identifying or becoming visible and communicating without having to verbally communicate who I am and what I'm about. I believe in searching for breakthroughs when problems appear. There's a great deal of disappointment that comes with being an artist, but the victories and success snap all of the trials and tribulations together. And that is Zenobia Bailey. Now, if you would like to join us and discuss any of the people that we've talked about tonight, we've talked about uh, Zenobia Bailey, we've talked about Ava DuVernay, and also we have talked about Barbara Harris, which became the first women uh, bishop in the Episcopal Church. If you have anything you'd like to include about them tonight or share your insights, please tap on the camera. If you are listening, by anchor i want to thank you for your time and attention tonight we will not be on on tomorrow but we will return on thursday night have a great and wonderful day take care and until next time be light